In Proverbs chapter 3, we have been anxiously awaiting the unfolding of this precious, precious uh, chapter in its fullness. And I think that's why it continues, for me at least, to be the joy of going slowly. Because as you go slowly, you go deeper. And as you go deeper, you exalt the Lord in a higher way. And I am so very, very thrilled at what the Lord has been teaching us through His Word. I just want to commend you uh, for the response that you have given to the Lord based on your giving. I have given uh, three messages right out of Proverbs chapter 3, uh, verses 9 and 10, and other places in Scripture. And so many of you have responded. We want to continue to, to encourage you to excel still more in your giving. Uh, at this particular point, uh, our weekly offering average is more than what is necessary, and so we are so deeply grateful for all of you who are continuing to give of the funds that the Lord is giving you. Uh, someone, I don't know who it is, I, uh, I do know that an individual uh, just, um, I think, blessed uh, to be able to give, uh, recently gave $60,000 to our building fund. And there are others who are contemplating their giving and praying about how the Lord would use them, not just in their regular giving, but building fund giving and benevolence giving and giving to missions. And uh, I am so very, very excited about what the Lord is doing in my heart and your heart as we continue to see the Word of God unfolded to us. And Proverbs 3 is no different. It tells us many, many things. And what we've been doing in this great chapter is understanding what I've called the wealth of wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 to 33, we looked at the warning of wisdom, how wisdom calls out to us and warns us about not forsaking it. And in Proverbs chapter 2, we have seen the work of wisdom, how you can work to gain it like you would silver and gold and precious treasure. And in chapter 3, we've been talking about the wealth of wisdom. And in verses 1 to 12, we've been occupying ourselves with what I have called the wealth of wisdom's command or the abundance of God's commands to us that are given here, almost in a like staccato fashion that show us the purity and the wonder of God's precious wisdom. And we have looked at a number of these commands, six of them, I believe, in verses 1 to 12. And we find ourselves this morning in the very last command in verses 1 to 12, and that is in verses 11 and 12. Command number six, and I have titled it, Accept the Loving Chastisement of the Lord. Accept the Loving Chastisement of the Lord. You follow along as I read these two verses. Solomon writes, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe His reproof. For whom the Lord loves, He reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. I recognize that these are just two brief verses amidst thousands of verses in our Bible. But as we go deeper into the content of God's Word, the higher our worship becomes. And in verses 11 and 12, we are hit with the reality of the command of the Lord to accept His loving chastisement. And I don't know if you noticed when I read that particular portion of His Word, there is a very fascinating juxtapositioning within these last two commands. In verses 9 and 10... It speaks about our giving. You see it there, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. In verses 9 and 10, it talks not only about our giving, but it talks about what giving gives to us, and that is prosperity. Verses 9 and 10 then really speak about financial prosperity. But right after that very positive and proactive command of the Lord to give and it shall be given to you, we hit verses 11 and 12, which speak of God's chastisement, which produces adversity. Prosperity, verses 9 and 10. Adversity, verses 11 and 12. Each, beloved, are necessary in the plan of God 
and for our good. If we were full of prosperity, according to verses 9 and 10, we could become proud and self-sufficient. If everything is going well, if all of our finances are in order, if we're giving and it's being given back to us, pressed down, shaken together, running over, we might become proud and self-sufficient. And so, it might be that we need a bit of adversity. Not so that we would be continually discouraged and defeated, but so that our pride and our self-sufficiency and are continually thinking that is that it is we ourselves who are the true gifts, and even those who give, we might need a little adversity. We've thoroughly discussed the prosperity aspects in verses 9 and 10 and elsewhere throughout Scripture, and now I want to talk this morning about the adversity that is spoken to us in verses 11 and 12. And in order to rightly understand the passage, I want you to see two sides of a coin. Two sides of a transaction. God's side in the matter of adversity and our side. Two perspectives. His parenting and our correction. And these two perspectives, my dear friends, are crucial components in understanding the right use of discipline in the spiritual realm. And if you don't understand these things, you will misunderstand what God is doing when you undergo biblical chastisement. You will misunderstand that that biblical discipline, biblical correction, is very necessary as a part of God's plan for our sanctification in the Christian life. And you must understand... And there's no better way to understand the Word of God than by understanding the terms that God uses to communicate to us what He desires us to learn. And so this morning, I want you to notice several terms that are used here in these two verses and other places which help us understand what is being communicated from God through Solomon by His Son to us. And I want you to notice the terms used by Solomon in this text that teach us a number of things. What does it teach us, first of all, about God? About God. What does it teach us about what He's doing in our life as a result of this issue of chastisement? Well, I want you to know that from God's perspective, there are three things in these two verses that I want you to know about. The first is the person. The person. The person who is bringing the chastisement. The person, or we might say, by whom the chastisement comes. By whom the chastisement comes. There is a person who is involved in bringing it to us. Secondly, from God's perspective, I want you to see the process. The process by which or through which this chastisement comes. And then thirdly, from God's perspective, I want you to see the purpose. The purpose. Or we might say the motive. The motive that God is using in sanctifying believers. So, from God's perspective, we have the person, we have the process, and we have the purpose. It is by whom this chastisement comes. It is through which the chastisement comes. And it is the motive that God uses in chastising His children. I want you to look at the person, the person by whom the chastisement comes. Look at verse 11. It clearly tells us that it is the Lord. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord. But it's not just the Lord. It's also, according to verse 12, a father. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. So to answer the question, by whom do these chastisements come? And the answer is one person, but reflected in two ways. He is the Lord, and He is our Father. He is the Lord, and He is our Father. 
And then secondly, I want you to notice through which the chastisement comes, or what we might call the process, the process. What does Solomon say is the process that God uses to sanctify us? Well, there are words that are used here like this, discipline, discipline, reproof, reproves, and corrects. Those are three key terms, reproof or reproves, discipline, and correction. That is the process through which God uses us, trains us, remediates us, learns us, as someone might say. And then thirdly, I want you to notice also the purpose for our Heavenly Father's discipline. It is for the very purpose, and this is a key idea, to demonstrate His love and His delight. Notice that it says, for whom, verse 12, the Lord loves, He reproves. And even as a father corrects the son in whom He delights. The very purpose for which God uses discipline and training and learning and correction in our lives is for nothing other than to show us His love and His delight in us. Now that's an amazing concept, and we'll see that fleshed out as we go on in this text this morning. Now I want you also, and I'll just mention it here so you can write it down in your notes, that there's another side or another perspective to this idea of God's discipline of us, and that is the perspective from our side of things, from our vantage point. And I want you to notice also that there are three aspects to this perspective as well. First, I call it the apprentice. The apprentice. Or to whom does this chastisement apply? And that, of course, is ourselves, believers. And for us in the New Covenant age, believers in Jesus Christ. The apprentice in all of this, the learner, the one who is gaining the wisdom from God through his chastisement, are those who have a right relationship with Jesus Christ, a right relationship as a son to their heavenly Father. And you see that by the very word that I just used, son. Do you see it listed there in verse 11? My son. And then verse 12 for whom the Lord loves, He reproves, even as a father corrects the son. The apprentice relationship is here. It is a son to his father. It is a father to a son. From his perspective, he is the father. From our perspective, we are the son. We look to him as our father. He looks to us as, our, as his sons, as, his, as the father of his sons. And we must see that it is an apprentice relationship. We're learners. We're ever-growing. None of us have arrived. None of us have matured. We are the apprentices forever and always in the Christian life. So from our side, there's the apprentice. And secondly, there's the action. The action. Or the how of my right response to this God. If I have a right relationship with Him, I must also have a right response to Him. The action that I must fulfill in my life is, verse 11, do not reject. Do not reject. In other words, as an active part of your will, do not reject the discipline of the Lord. That's my part. That's what I'm supposed to do. That's how I'm supposed to respond. That's the action part of my life. That's my will. And then thirdly, there's an attitude. An attitude. It's not just that I acknowledge that I'm an apprentice. It's not just the fact that I am to do an action. I'm also behind that action supposed to have an attitude. And what is that attitude? Do not loathe. Do not loathe. That's the at the end of verse 11. Do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe or become weary of His reproof. I need to have a right relationship, a son to a father. I need to have a right response and action that says, as an act of my will, I will choose not to reject this discipline. And I need to have an attitude. And that attitude is this. My attitude is that I have a right resolve. Don't be weary. Don't loathe God. 
Don't respond to Him in that way when discipline comes. And you see how this passage then neatly flows from the idea that from God's perspective, there's a person, there's a process, and there's a purpose. And from our perspective, there's an apprentice that's ourselves, there's an action, don't reject His discipline, and there's an attitude behind that action, and that is don't loathe His reproof. Now let's look at first this relationship from God's perspective, and we'll talk a little bit, very briefly, about the person who is bringing this discipline to us. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. And I believe that under, of course, the authority of Holy Scripture and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Solomon wants us to know, first and foremost, that the one who is bringing the discipline to us is the Lord. That that word is used, that term is used very advisedly by Solomon. Why? Because the first thing he wants us to understand about our lives, our lives as believers in God, is that God is in control. God's in charge. He's the Creator. He's the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. He is Yahweh. He is the God of creation. We aren't talking about some mere man here. Or as I've heard on the television, it it seems like so much lately, people referring to Him as the man upstairs. That's blasphemous. God is not a man that He should be like us. He is the Lord. Yahweh is God. He's the God of Creator. He, He created the whole universe. He's the one who's created us. And maybe that's the first place we ought to be when we understand chastisement or discipline. And that is that it is the Lord who is bringing it. We can't question that. It's because it is coming to us from the perfect Lord. We must never lose sight of the fact, beloved, that it is the sovereign majestic of the universe that we're dealing with. And when He chooses to bring something into my life, to bring me to a place of repentance, of brokenness, of contrition, I don't argue back as though I am the clay telling the potter what to do. He is the Lord We're not to reject the discipline of the Lord. We're not to to loathe His reproof. And this is obviously speaking of the reverence that we must have for God in the process of our sanctification. In other words, we can't treat the Christian life so lightly. We cannot tread on God so lightly. We cannot treat God as though He were some kind of flawed, sinful man Himself. He is the I Am. That's that's the very idea behind this word Lord. When Moses asked God, who shall I say is sending me to the children of Israel and to Egypt to say to Pharaoh, let my people go, whom shall I say has sent me? And what did God say? I am that I am. I am the self-existent one. I'm the ever-present one. I'm the all-powerful one. I'm the sovereign, majestic one. Who are we to trifle with this kind of God? Who are we to question this kind of God? Irreverence, my friends, is in these days, isn't it? Irreverence is in these days. Reverence is out. Eminence, the idea that God is my buddy to the exclusion of transcendence, that God is wholly other, that's in these days. But God is Lord. Lord. And we must notice always that He's not some detached deity. But now having said that, that He's Lord, that He's in charge, that He's the sovereign, majestic One, never to be questioned, it is also true that that not only is He high and lifted up, as Isaiah said, not only is He this sovereign of the skies, this this holy monarch, He's also our Father. He's also our Father. That's what kind of person He says. Notice verse 12. The Father corrects His Son. You see, He's not simply the, the sovereign, majestic, holy God of the universe, but He's also the Father of us. He's our Heavenly Father. That's sometimes how we pray, don't we? Oh, dear Heavenly Father. It's wonderful. He is He's our, our Dad. He's our, our very eminent Father. Not just the transcendent majesty, 
but also the father who is working tirelessly to correct his delightful son. Yes, he is over us as Lord. He is over us as Lord, but he also comes alongside us as father. This is the person by whom our sanctification comes. And that's what Solomon wants to tell his son. If, if you listen to anything, my son, listen to this. When the discipline comes in your life, it is the Lord. He is sovereign, high, majestic, holy, lifted up, but He's also a father, just like I'm a father to you. And He will delight in you if you will not reject His discipline. This is the person by whom our sanctification comes. But there's also a process. Look at it with me. There's also a process through which this sanctification comes, and that is discipline. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord. Now, some of your Bibles may say chastening. Do not reject the chastening, or maybe even some, the instruction. It's really all the same word, and it essentially all means the same thing. And even in the New Testament, we could see this in a parallel passage, that, in fact, that expands off of Proverbs 3, that quotes Proverbs 3, and that's Hebrews 12. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, because this is a divine commentary on Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. I love these divine commentaries because we don't have to fill in any of the supposed gaps in our understanding. It just comes right out and tells us exactly what Proverbs 3 is telling us. And it goes beyond these two brief verses. In Hebrews chapter 12, notice what it says in verse 4. Now remember, it's in the context of suffering. These particular Jews, so many of them had come to faith in Christ. Judaism had been left behind. Christianity had come. And they were mercilessly being persecuted, suffering. And some of them apparently not suffering unto death, suffering to some degree, but maybe they had begin, begun to say, as we might say in our own vernacular, copying an attitude. Maybe they had begun to become self-absorbed. Maybe they had become a, a little proud. Maybe they had become a little self-focused and believed about themselves that they shouldn't be undergoing uh, the kind of suffering that they're undergoing. Maybe they don't like the persecution that's coming. And of course, it's not just coming by human means. Who's in control of it all? God. God's in control of it all. And if there's any persecution coming in my life, if there's any suffering coming in my life, who's bringing it? God is, even if He uses sinful, flawed agents to bring it to me. And so the writer to Hebrews says in verse 4, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Maybe some of them have. We know that in chapter 11, just the chapter before, some of them had undergone that very thing. But some of the others had not, but maybe they're complaining about it. So the writer says, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. And here's a quotation right out of Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint, that's that idea of loathing, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. Why? For whom the Lord loves he disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. Notice that word discipline there in verse 5. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. In the Greek text, that's the word paideia. It means discipline. It means training. And it means that the process of our sanctification includes God the Father's training hand, chastening hand, disciplining hand. That's what it includes, His discipline of us. One of the good commentators of the Old Testament, David Hubbard, on Proverbs 3 says this. Listen very carefully. It's very, very good. Quote, Cherish as they did, speaking about the Jews, Solomon's son, Solomon, all of the Jews, cherish as they did their commandments, chide as they did their pupils, they knew that perfect obedience was an impossibility. The temptations were too pressing and attractive. Individuals were too gullible and willful. 
No matter how clearly God marked out the paths of righteousness, some would miss them by carelessness and others would leave them by stubbornness. Leave those paths of righteousness. And when they did, because their basic trust was in God and their deep-seated desire was to please Him, He would meet them as a disciplining father determined to point out their mistakes and return them to the right road. And that's what God does for us, doesn't He? Either by carelessness or by stubbornness, we are off the path of righteousness and God, by His disciplining hand, brings us back on to the right road. And this is in the context of discipline or chastening, which means it's in the context of our sin, whether it's our complaining like they may have been doing, whether it's like those who are kicking against the goads like Paul did. That's what Jesus said to him. Paul, why are you kicking against the goads? Why why are you kicking against the pricks? It would be an idea like someone who was kicking against what was being brought to them. Why are you kicking against me? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Don't you understand that I've brought what I've brought in your life and so much more to follow so that you would understand how much you must suffer for my sake? There's a plan. There's There's a process, and God is bringing it to us. The Father is determined in the context of our sin to bring us discipline, training, so that we might be coming back on the right road. We could call it instructive discipline. Not, not church discipline, not Matthew 18 discipline. Instructive discipline. A believer, a son, a son of their father, but someone who has sinned, someone who's strayed. And what God does is He instructively disciplines us. And notice also in Proverbs 3 that the Lord our Father brings reproof. Verse 11, reproof. And in verse 12, reproves. And this also may be translated variously in our Bibles, maybe correction. Maybe that's the word you have. It's the same idea, reproof, correction. And in the Hebrews passage, by the way, in chapter 12, the writer chooses to use in the Greek text another word which generally means someone who has done something wrong and is now being exposed in his sin. So all of these contexts, Proverbs 3 and Hebrews 12, are all in the context that we are on the learning curve because our sins against our Father need to be corrected, exposed, reproved. It's the sense of setting a man aright by the Lord. Sometimes in your Bibles or sometimes as a way to clarify what is being referred to here so as not to be misunderstood, it might be the word rebuke, discipline. It might even be the word punish. Now, there might be someone who say, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. The only punishment that I underwent as a Christian was what Jesus did on my behalf at Calvary. And in a sense, that's right. Uh, The discipline that I'm talking about here is not what I might call judicial discipline. It's not the discipline of a heavenly judge who says, you've rejected Jesus Christ and therefore you must be punished for your sins, that was taken away at Calvary. That's not what Hebrews 12 is specifically referring to. And that's not what Proverbs 3 is specifically referring to. What it's specifically referring to is a person who understands that his deep-seated love is for God, that his desire is for righteousness, that he wants to be on the right path, but because we know we're not perfect, because we know we can't attain the standard of perfection, and because we know sometimes, either because of carelessness or stubbornness, that we are veering off the path, we then welcome the discipline of the Lord, the correction of the Lord, not from a judicial viewpoint, but from a parental one. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about God's loving parenting is parental discipline in my life. That includes punishment. It does include punishment, parental punishment. Have you ever done that with your kids? Have you ever punished your kids? Sure you have. Some of us, it seems, much more than others. The idea that there's always and forever, just as we said yesterday over the weekend, boy, it just seems like in those early years, that's all you're doing. But it's a parental punishment. It's not a judicial punishment. It's not as though I'm saying to my, to my children, now one of these days, if you can attain to this standard, I'll let you be my child. No, this is, this is talking about a, a relationship that's already been established. And the relationship that is established 
would then prove through a process to be very instructive even though it might be negative. It's instructive discipline, but it is discipline nonetheless. It's punishment through correction. And by the way, in the Hebrews text, notice what it says. And He scourges every son whom He receives. Scourge? Boy, that's a strong word. Yes, it is. It's used in the Bible and was, of course, used in the context of the day to speak of whipping, physical whipping. That's exactly what Jesus underwent, both spiritually and physically. Isaiah 53, He was scourged. He was whipped. Spiritually in Isaiah 53 and in the Gospels, it physically came to pass also. That's what God does with us. He he scourges us because he, He receives us into an adoptive relationship as a son or a daughter in Christ. And through that process, He wants us to grow. He wants us to learn. Scourging, mastigoi, the whipping of us. Charles Bridges, one of the great Puritans, great commentary on Proverbs, says it this way, Nowhere indeed, as our corruptions are so manifest or our graces so shining as under the rod. We need it as much as our daily bread. Children of God are still children of Adam, and with Adam's will, pride, independence, and waywardness, and nothing more distinctly requires divine teaching and grace than how to preserve in our behavior the just balance between hardness and despondency, neither despising the chastening of the Lord nor being weary of His correction." It's always this balance of the chastening hand of the Lord and of not being weary of that chastening because I know what it brings and what it brings is blessing. We all know it. We all know what it means to be under the chastening hand of the Lord and what it means is that there are times, yes, in a very negative connotation through adversity, a process by which God brings to us the rod of His reproof and He hits our backside and we understand that we have sinned against Him. And it may be that the harder the rod, the more sin we've been committing in that area or this, and God will bring it to us unmistakably until we learn, ouch, I understand, Lord. I understand. You're the sovereign of the skies. I can't kick against you. I can't tell you that what you've done is wrong. I can't tell you that your plan is not to be brought to fruition. I can't tell you that what you've done to me is, is absurd. I can't even question you. And why? Because you love me because you're my heavenly Father. You delight in me. And that's the purpose, isn't it? The purpose. Because He reproves those who He loves. Even as a father, verse 12, corrects the son in whom He delights. You say, what's God's purpose in all this? What's God's purpose in chastisement? Well, is it to throw me out of the kingdom? No! We are true sons of the kingdom. We can never be thrown out. We're eternally secure in our sonship. Once we become a son, we never are not a son. But as a son, if we truly know the Father, God is not going to be some kind of sadistic killjoy who delights in our injury. No, not at all. Absolutely not. Some might read, for instance, Psalm 39.11 that way, which says, With reproofs you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath. And they might say, well, there it is. Uh, God just wants to consume us like a moth. Uh, He wants to chasten us for our iniquity. And they might conclude that God is only about hurting and crippling a man. But that's not so. And Proverbs 3 and Hebrews 12 tells us it is for the purpose. What is that purpose behind the chastening for whom the Lord loves? I love you, son. I love you enough to tell you that you're veering off the path. I I, I delight in you. And notice that's, that's what it says there in verse 12. Even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. He delights presently in him. This is not a performance-based kind of thing where if on a good day you're obedient, that means I delight in you. And on a bad day and you're disobedient, I don't delight in you. I delight in you no matter what, but I'm also going to use my chastening hand in your life to bring that delight to a level that I know that you know that your obedience is really the issue for my own glory. 
I, I delight in you, yes, and I'm going to use whatever means to do that for you. You know, it's really the opposite of what it says in Jeremiah 5, 3. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? You have smitten them, but they refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. And see, that's what pride does. Pride just refuses to repent. It refuses to be laid low. It, it wants to exalt. It wants to be lifted high. Bridges said, pride will lift up the head, stiff and unbending. Many a stroke does it require to bring it down. Many a stroke. And if you're a true son in the faith, you'll respond. Maybe not initially. Maybe not initially, but ultimately you'll respond by seeing God's love and delight in you and you'll say, Lord, I can see what you're doing. I may not have understood it initially, but now I understand. I see what you're doing and, and I accept it. I embrace it. Lord, I, I see the bigger picture. You see, all that we have said thus far, that's, that's from God's perspective. What about ours? Look at the apprentice perspective. We're children. That's what we are. Mere, mere children. My son. Verse 11. A son. Verse 12. That's, that's what we are. We are sons of our Father, and He will stop at nothing in the process of our apprenticeship to bring us to a place where we are obedient. That's why Philippians 1.6 says what it says. For I'm confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will what? Perfect it, perform it, bring it to completion, bring it to its appointed end. The apprentice will be discipled so that he will become like his master. That's what Jesus said. I will disciple you and you will come to the place where you will be like your master. That's God's apprenticeship of us. That's what we need to see from our side of things. Even if it means there will be a scourging for our ultimate growth. But of course, so many will say, but the process he's using isn't fair, right? It isn't fair. And I'll be the first one to say that that is my reaction and that is your reaction at one point or another, right? Uncle, ouch, it's hurting. It's too much. This isn't fair. But it is fair. Because the potter has the right to do anything he wants with the clay. And it's not like he's motivated by some sinful thought, or action, or attitude. He loves us. He delights in us. He, he wants us to be like his son. That's, that's what he's all about. And from our perspective, we need to see this apprentice role. You don't have to turn there, but Second Chronicles 16 says an amazing thing about King Asa, one of the kings of the Jews. He shrinks from searching into the cause, the cause of his problems, and in his case, ultimately physical problems. He shrinks from searching into the cause. He disregards his father's loving voice and purpose. This is what Charles Bridges says. Hence, there is no softening humiliation, no acceptance of the punishment of iniquity, no childlike submission, no exercise of faith in looking for support. And he says, is this not a despising of the chastening of the Lord? Yes. You see, God has a plan, and I'm an apprentice, and I've got to follow that plan. And that plan is not only just the recognition, the acknowledgement that I'm an apprentice of my master, uh, that I'm a son of my father, that I'm a kingdom subject of the king, but it's also, there's an action to this. It's not just that I say, yes, I'm a Christian. Uh, yes, I'm a son of, of God. Yes, I, I'm a child of God. Yes, I, I go to church. Yes, I give money. Yes, I pray. Yes, I've prayed to receive Christ. Yes, I... Attend church regularly. Yes, I do these and those things. What about chastening? Do you receive it? Do you embrace it? Do you say as part of the apprenticeship is not all of those other things, but more, even my suffering? Even God looking at me and saying, this is not pleasing to me, this area of your life. And I love you enough to show you. There's an action part of this. And what is that action? Do not reject the discipline of the Lord. Don't, don't reject what he's doing. And that's my will. That's, that's the triggering of the acknowledgement of your apprenticeship. That's where you say, yes, I know who I am. And as a result of who I am, this is what I do. This is what I do. This is what God does by chastening me 
And my response to that is not only to acknowledge that I'm an apprentice, but in that apprenticeship, I'm sometimes going to have my knuckles wrapped. I'm sometimes going to burn my hand at the stove. I'm sometimes going to see that because of the dross in my life, that there's a burning of that dross away. And I can't reject that. I can't reject that at all. If I have a right relationship with God, then I need to have a a, a right response to God. And that right response is to say, Lord, you can do with me whatever you will. My life is yours. I, 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 like Paul, do not count my life as anything to myself. Do with me what you want, Lord. And when I sin, challenge me. Challenge me. You read Psalm 38. David, clearly the sweet psalmist of Israel, speaks about this reproof, this correction, this training, and then he turns it right around and says, and Lord, you're right to do this. You're absolutely right to do this. Job 5.17 says the same thing. That's to be our response. And why? Because remember, God's ultimate goal, like Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 29, I have a plan for you, plan for welfare and not for what? Calamity. To give you a future and a hope. I want to give you a hope. I want to give you a future. I'm not some sadistic killjoy. I'm not just some a cosmic meanie out there who wants to wrap your spiritual knuckles the very first time you're out of line? Not at all. In fact, what does is, what is Hebrews 12 say? What does it say about the process? It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? Even our earthly fathers, he says in verses 9 and 10, they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, he, God, he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Oh, that's good. God is not doing it because he's some celestial ogre. He's doing it because he loves us. He's committed to us. He is far more committed to us than we are to ourselves. And we are really committed to ourselves, aren't we? And yet He far more, and in a sinless way. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Oh, that's that's the goal. That's what God's doing. That's what He's all about. Oh, and I love what Lamentation says to us. I can't think of a, of a passage that, that seems to me to, to capture what we're saying. Lamentations chapter 3, it, it's really the essence of this, this matter. We, we read it, it says in verse 31, For the Lord will not reject forever, for if He causes grief, then He will have compassion according to His abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. He's not up there just trying to smack whoever's walking by. He loves us, committed to us. Absolutely unending commitment. Bridges. Instead of despising, reverence the chastening of the Lord. Let it be a solemn remembrance to thee that thou art under the Father's correction. Receive it then in good part. Instead of being weary of it, hang upon His chastening hand and pour thy very soul into His bosom. You know how sometimes you just, either as a father or a son, you receive the rod, and even though you knew you'd done wrong, even though you knew you'd committed sin, even though... You knew that you were as a son disobedient and your father gave you the rod and he says, I hate to do this. I don't want to do this, but I must do this. And you just come into an embrace because you know the love is still there. The commitment is still there. The father still wants you to come into his presence, but he also wants you to know that sin is to be dealt with. How do you react to the chastening hand of God? How do you react to it? What's the the attitude behind it? 
Well, I'll tell you what the attitude is. Don't loathe His reproof. Don't kick against it. Don't fight against it. Even if you can't understand it. Because you know what? If you kick against it, if you do it continually, if you've had a pattern of it, it may be that it's not the parental chastisement of a loving Heavenly Father. It may be that you're kicking against the judicial reaction of the anger of a judge. And if you do it continually, and if you do it forever, if like Jeremiah says, you repeatedly do not repent based upon correction and anger and wrath, could be exactly what Hebrews 12 says. If you are not under the discipline of the Lord, it may be because you are an illegitimate son and not a true son. That's what it says there. It says, for, for what person is not under discipline? It's almost that rhetorical question that says, everybody's under discipline. Everybody's under the rod of God's reproof, except those who have developed the pattern in their entire life of never responding at all to the discipline of God, always and forever rejecting it, loathing His reproof, kicking against His ways, saying no to His purposes. And the writer to Hebrews says, and if that's you, it may very well be that you have never become a son of your father. Never. Oh, He is Creator, and one day He will be judge, and if you're not His son, He'll be the judge of you forever. You might be sitting here this morning and saying to yourself, I can't really say that I've ever experienced the parental love that you've talked about as a heavenly father toward his child. Well, it may be because you're not a son. It may be because you have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, that you've not said yes to Him, that you've not clung to Him, that you've not come to a place where you're rejecting your own will, that you're rejecting God's purposes for your own. Don't do it. Don't do it. Bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Did you know that even though it says Yahweh in Proverbs 3, that in Hebrews chapter 12 and in other places, so many times in the New Testament, it's countless times that Jesus Christ is referred to as the Lord. He's the Lord. It's the same word that's used in the Old Testament to refer to God the Father. And if someone has never bowed their knee to God the Father, it means they've never bowed their knee to Jesus Christ as Lord. You say, well, if, if you're telling me that to bow the knee to Jesus Christ means to bring chastening in my life, no thank you. Well, that means you need to repent. You need to repent. Because that thought will cast you into an eternal hell forever. Why go there? Why not right now, in your place, in your seat right now, if you've never done so, bow your knee to Jesus Christ. Don't kick against God anymore. I want you to bow your heads with me. Oh God, I don't want to kick against You anymore. Father, I don't want to know You as the, the eternal judge. But just as I referred to You, Father, a, a parental relationship is what I, I know I need and I, I acknowledge my sin to You. I acknowledge that You're Creator. I acknowledge that You are Lord and I want You as my Father. I, I don't want your fury and your wrath as judge. I want your, your loving chastisement as, as a heavenly Father. Father, I pray for those who are in this place and they have continually, in an unrestrained way, habitually rejected the Lord's Word. I pray that You would cause them, even now, as only You can, 
to repent, to turn, to say no to their sin and to to say yes to You. Lord Jesus Christ, come into my life. Wash me. Cleanse me. Make me an apprentice. Allow my actions to be yes to You and not rejecting Your discipline. Cause in my heart the attitude of not loathing, but a beautiful reception of Your chastening hand when I sin. Lord, I pray that You would give this to me. I want to cast myself on the mercy of Jesus Christ. Please save me. For those of you who are here who say, I've I've already known this parental relationship. I've already been a son of my Father. But I'm under His chastening hand now. And I have for a time been, been rejecting it and thinking that I could sanctify myself. But I can't. And so I pray. I confess. I thank You for the cross of Christ. I thank You that that's where the judge expiated my sins, propitiated my guilt upon that cross at Calvary. And now I want to be a, a delightful son, so delightful to You that You would Bless me and keep me in your place of a circle of blessing. Father, I pray for any of those here, even those who are here and saying, I have gone through that chastening hand and I'm now in a place where I've responded, I've embraced it, and I've been further sanctified, and I thank you, God, for this. Thank you, Father. We love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.